we are looking at different options. So what we are in the process of doing now is actually to do a roadmap. So we know we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. So what's the trajectory that is going to take us there? Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm John Fiella. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast and we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to take two minutes of your time to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast player. At our recent Renewable Energy Forum, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Victor Udo, Bucknell University's Director of Sustainability, to discuss their recent announcement regarding a seven-acre solar array on the Bucknell campus. Victor explains how the project came about, how it fits in with their overall sustainability strategy, and what was needed to overcome a sometimes contentious process to gain local ordinance needed to proceed. Listeners are in for a special treat in this episode, as there's bonus content exclusive to this episode of Smart Energy Voices, where we'll be addressing Victor's amazing personal journey. This is a must listen for other large power users, especially at higher education, as Victor is an extremely inspiring individual. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Why don't we start by having you give our attendees a brief description of your background, how you came to Bucknell, and your current role at the university. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for having me. John, you, you've been a great uh, leader with the advisory board. I have been blessed since I joined the advisory board. I've learned significantly from you and the members of the advisory board. My attendance at the smart energy events have been very, very helpful to me personally and my job as a whole. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak in this forum. I think this is a very great forum and uh, renewable energy is a very, very key strategy to fighting and mitigating the climate change and actually also doing some social responsibility through appropriate use of renewable energy for community work and community services. So it's my pleasure to be here. As you can see from my accent, I'm a Nigerian-born American. I started in the industry actually in a battery manufacturing plant where the government of Nigeria then had partnered with a a company in uh, Germany to run this battery manufacturing plant. It wasn't a a lithium-ion like we have today. It was basically a lead-acid wet cell that we produce. Use a lead ingox from uh, Nigeria, grind the lead, make oxide of it, and actually make a battery. So I've been there, understand how battery is done. And I'm so happy to see that the industry is going back to battery, which I think is the key for being able to capture a renewable energy that we produce at different stages. That background, I came to the U.S., studied in a small school in Birmingham, Alabama, where I also work with the works department to help them to manage energy and be energy efficient. 
From there, I went to Howard University where I work in Energy System Network Laboratory with one of my professors where we did a lot of simulation for the power industry. At that time, renewable energy wasn't as, was still a thing of the future, not as much as we have it today. But we always thought about the integration of distributed generation into the large-scale interconnected power system. And then when I finished my master's degree at Howard, I was given the opportunity to work for a company then called Atlantic City Electric, which evolved to become Atlantic Energy and then merged with the Mava Power to become Connective in Delaware, and subsequently was acquired by Pepco Holdings in Washington, D.C. And Pepco today has been acquired by Exelon. Exelon is the biggest utility with a lot of nuclear clean energy in the United States. So when I had worked with Pepco Energy for quite a few years, my governor in Nigeria asked me to come back and help them with the power infrastructure there, saving about 6 million Nigerians. Akwaibom State, which is one of the fastest growing, youngest and fastest growing states in Nigeria. So I spent about seven years in Nigeria doing power system from distribution, transmission, generation. And then in the last three years, the new governor asked me to help him with comprehensive sustainable uh, development plan, which is what I did before I came to Howard. I had studied uh, sustainable development to the PhD level as part of my public policy education at University of Delaware, where I look at social sustainability, technological sustainability, and environmental sustainability. And so when I came back to the U.S., I was offered a position to be the director of sustainability at Bucknell University, where I am currently at, working with the faculty, working with the students and staff and administrator to make sure Bucknell have a solid plan, actually developing a 10-year plan that is driven by the strategic plan of the university to help us become carbon neutral by 2030, try to become net zero waste institution, try to make sure our ecology is uh, uh, restored and we do a lot of tree planting and also implementing an ESG framework, uh, ESG meaning uh, environmental, social and governance framework under what we call a socially responsible investing. So it's been a great, great, great journey at a personal level, a professional level. But being at the university now, working with students and helping them to be leaders of the future is a very interesting, very interesting journey. And renewable energy is a key part of us becoming carbon neutral by 2030. Yeah, well, that's great, Victor. I'd love to the opportunity at some point to talk further about being called back to Nigeria by the government to work on an energy infrastructure plan is something we're unfortunately unable to get into right now, but it's something I do want to talk further about with you. Everyone listening should know Victor actually wrote a book about his experience in Nigeria. It's called Which Way Nigeria? It's a fascinating look at opportunities for sustainable development in that country and it provides a great history and background on the country. So uh, I recommend that to all of our listeners. I couldn't resist putting in a plug for your book, Thank you. Victor. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much, John. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. I actually have another one that is coming that is going to be sustainable, sustainability insight for transforming the power sector globally. So I appreciate you doing that. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to reading that one too. So Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on at Bucknell. Can you give us an overview, Victor, of the overall sustainability plan and the role that renewables will be playing within it? Sure. Sustainability is something that Bucknell has been in for a very long time. Bucknell is a a small uh, private 
residential college in central Pennsylvania. Very uh, passionate students, faculty, staff on environmental issue, on social issues, and technology also. Bognell is so blessed to have very good alums that have gone off to be great leaders in different corporate environment. We've gotten some of uh, our graduates become leaders of big companies like Walmart, like Home Depot. Some of them started big companies and are doing very well. And they come back and, and contribute. And the renewable energy, especially the solar project we're going to talk about, is was actually implemented by a group of graduates who had con- gone on to start a very good big corporation, renewable energy, that they're doing a great job. So I joined, I joined Bonner in September 2019. And by the time I came in there, there was a lot that was already going on. And so my assignment was to implement the sustainability plan that the strategic plan called for. And our strategic plan is very specific about sustainability. And the idea was to get a sustainability plan that is focusing on helping us go carbon neutral, making sure we reduce waste, making sure we also encourage biodiversity and natural habitat. And so we started by forming four working groups to help us do what we call simultaneous planning and implementation. The reason we did that is because the university have been in the process of planning. And so when I joined the university, everybody was like, come on, we've been planning, planning, we need to get some results. And so my immediate action was, okay, let's form these four working groups. And with those four working groups, we have faculty, students, staff, volunteer. In one working mm-hmm. group, we have over 60 people that volunteered. And then we said, okay, let's be very specific. When we say waste reduction, what do we want to do? What does that mean? And we say, okay, by 2026, 2027, we want to become net zero, zero waste status. That doesn't mean we have to reduce waste complete zero, but the definition by industry is you divert at least 90% of your waste that would have gone to uh, landfill. We also say, okay, what are we going to do about carbon neutrality? So we formed three subgroups under the mm-hmm. carbon neutrality working group. We have a subgroup that is saying, okay, how do we power the campus? And mm-hmm. that's where the renewable energy, the solar project come, comes in there. We also say, okay, how are we going to enhance efficiencies? How are we going to decarbonize the campus by making sure our transportation systems, how do we move away from fossil energy? Then the third one look at carbon pricing. What's the price for carbon? If we do all the reduction that we are going to do, if we're bringing all the solar and we are not able to get carbon neutrality, we probably would have to get some offset. What kind of offset would make sense? What kind of offset will we buy? Are we going to do with scope one, scope two, and scope three of, of our emissions? And so these working groups are looking at those options. And before I came to Bucknell, my colleagues, the university had already had a, an energy master plan. In the energy master plan, they had identified four areas that they say we could put solar projects in there. Mm-hmm. They, had, they had actually gone out for an RFP for 25 to 30 year PPA. And then one of the companies, Encor, came out to be the best in terms of experience, in terms of costs, and they make the proposal for us and that's the project we're going to install 1.6 megawatt as the first step. And as we do the first 1.6 megawatt, which is going to reduce our energy from fossil fuel by 8%, we think once we do that effectively, then we will see how we do with other three remaining sites on campus. So that's, that's where we are, and that's been the process, the journey so far. 
Interesting. So the working group approach, I find to be a fascinating one because on these working groups, you had faculty, staff, students, volunteers, you really engaged the entire community. Let's talk a little more about this solar project. You, you made the major announcement in April. I guess you mentioned it's a 1.6 megawatt solar array across seven acres. I know it, it took close to two years to to get this project going. Can you tell us a little more, Victor, about how it came about? How was it decided to do solar? What involvement did you have to have with the town? What role did students play in in the project? Give us a little more detail on this particular solar project. Sure, sure, sure. Like I said, Bognell have always been at the forefront of environmentalism and making sure we cut our dependence on our fossil energy. And so the energy master plan, the university have an energy master plan, which called for installing four solar sites on campus. And so Bognell solicited for, like I said before, a 25 to 30 year power purchase agreement from four different firms. That was done in late 2018 and early 2019. Encore Renewable Energy of Burlington, Vermont, was mm-hmm. selected as the lowest cost and the most experienced provider. The CEO of the company and the COO of the company are both Bognell alumni. But this was not the, the main reason that we choose them. We sure. choose them because they were the low cost, they had the, the most experience, they uh-huh. understand the project very well. And so they came in. When they came in, we are in a small town called East Buffalo Township. There was no ordinance for installing solar. Okay. So, and so we went through that process and then there was make sure that there was clear regulation and timing. So this project was actually used as the, as the test case, if you mm-hmm. will, as the mm-hmm. test case for ordinance and the planning and the zoning process. And so we had to have students, we had to have faculty, the community people to testify. To, there were people who, who said we shouldn't be doing it. And there were people who said it is a good thing for the environment. But at the end, a good ordinance was approved and the process was used in testing this. And this project was finally approved. And we, we are in the process actually now of uh, breaking grounds. And we hope by the end of the year, the 1.6 megawatt should be functioning. And like I said, it's going to help us reduce our utility costs because we, because of the pandemic and the challenges the universities are having across the globe, we uh-huh. introduce another concept. We say we want to be budget neutral also. So we don't want to break the budget while being renewable. And good enough, this project we are talking about is a clear example of that. It's helping us to reduce our utility bill. The university is not spending upfront costs, upfront capital. Mm-hmm. And it's reducing our carbon footprint, our dependence on fossil energy by 8%. So we think with this kind of model, we might be able to do more of that, become carbon neutral with budget neutrality. That's exciting. Financially responsible, renewable energy. That's, that's what everyone's in search of. So congratulations on the persistence that was required to get that, that project going, Victor. I think the credit is actually to my colleagues. I joined at the middle of the process, the faculty, the staff, especially my colleague Jim Knight, the facility teams at Bognell. Everybody have done a great job and uh, we are very happy. The community is now happy. It's a good win-win project for both the local community, the global environment and the university community. And it's also going to be a learning opportunity for students. So they're going to see the practical aspect of this. And we also celebrate the fact that our looms 
people who graduated from here learned from here and they went and do business, start a big corporation and come back to do this for the community. So it's, it's a good, good story. That's super. So what's next? What, what, what's next at Bucknell in regard to its sustainability journey? Yeah, we, we are looking at different options. So what we are in the process of doing now is actually to do a roadmap. So we know we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. So what's the trajectory that is going to take us there? We've gotten this 1.6 megawatt, which is 8% of our total fossil. We are currently looking at, do we electrify the entire campus? We have about 80 or 70% of our energies from our, our cogen, which is burning natural gas right now. So some of our thinking is, okay, would technology be sufficient so that we can use hydrogen? Will we have to shut down that cogen? Do we electrify the campus? So we are looking at different options. We've not yet picked the pathway. Mm-hmm. We are sure in the next one or two years, we should be able to have a pathway so that in the next nine years, we actually know exactly how we are going to do. We don't have all the answers yet. There's going to be some financial implications of this. And, and also looking at the options of uh, offset, what kind of offset would be acceptable? Would the community want us to buy offset from the international market, the national market, the local market? We have a sewage authority here that have a digester that thinks if they have enough, enough waste, they might be able to produce bio, biofuel or renewable natural gas. So we are looking at all of that options. Our distribution company right here, Citizen Electric, is not a producer of electricity. There are a lot of farms. Some universities are even looking at the opportunity of combining doing what is called dual farming, where you farm solar uh-huh. and also farm animals, all kinds of options. So nothing is actually written on the stones now, but we are looking at all options that will help us to become carbon neutral and budget neutral. Well, that's fascinating. So many organizations that have made these carbon reduction commitments are truly in the process of figuring it out as they go. And there are going to be numerous changes that will be required. I know based on your development, your involvement in developing the power system in Nigeria, you've got a point of view on, on the utility sector. What do you think is going to be required, Victor, in the utility sector and the grid? How is the grid going to have to evolve to support all of the changes that are being made by organizations around their sustainability commitments? Very, very good. A very good question. But let, before, before I answer that question, I, I should let you know that Bognell actually set the carbon neutrality goal in 2008. Oh, 2008. Okay. Yeah. Carbon neutral. That was a long time ago, right? And we've been working on it. At a global perspective, there's no question in my mind that the trajectory, the movement is toward decarbonization, decentralization, and digitalization. Those three things are going to drive the way the the grid is going to look like. I don't Mm -hmm. think the grid we have today where you have a vertically integrated utility, well, that already been restructured. So we don't have, when I started in the industry, we were the generator of electricity, the transmitter, we transmitted all that we did, and then we distribute, and then we did customer service. And then towards the early part of my practicing in the industry, we started the restructuring. The delivery business was the couple from the generation business. And then things changed. As renewable energy become more practical. At that time, renewable energy was not practical. The cost of solar, the cost of wind were very, very expensive. So what you're going to see, I believe, you're going to see large-scale renewable like wind, 
offshore and onshore wind. So you're going to see large scale um, projects on like that. And then you're going to see the low scale, which is more like solar panels on rooftop, community solar, and so on. Right. And then you're going to see the middle part. That's going to be something in between that large scale, offshore wind, and rooftop wind. And so like the petroleum industry, I see the industry, I see our grid, the network, and the market decoupling into three big areas. You're going to have the, the upstream, which is the big renewable projects. Could be like hydro from, from Canada coming into U.S. and may even be going all the way to Mexico. You have a super grid. You're going to see probably that happen in Africa, connecting the renewable energy that we, there is a lot of it in Africa to the north, to, to southern Europe. That's the, the upstream. The midstream is going to be more like what we normally call the national grid. Be what it is, but it's not going to be exactly the same because you're going to have this upstream and then you're going to have the downstream restructuring what was called a national grid into more like a, a midstream. And so mm-hmm. you can have in the north, the, the upstream, you're going to see things like giga grids, you're going to see mega grids, and then you're going to have the national grid. People talk about macro grid, micro grid, pico grid. So those you're going to see evolve into three segments like what I think is happening in the, the oil industry. As the renewable energy replaces the oil, mm-hmm. you're going to see these streams. Yeah, fascinating. Well, it's an interesting vision for the future of the grid. Thank you for that. Why are you passionate about the, the sustainability space and the renewable energy space? Tell us about why you've devoted your career to this area. It's embedded in me from the beginning. There is this urge that says, enjoy the earth and replenish it. We have a fixed planet and there is population growth. There's always population that people are going to keep growing population. And there is this big divide, as we all know, between the rich, the have and the have not. And this mm-hmm. was really the thing I, I studied at when I was doing my PhD and see the gap that less than 20% of the global population own more than 80% and use more than 80% of the resources. That's, that's not sustainable. And then the United Nations came up with this, left no one behind. So, so for me, bridging that gap of the have and the have nots, how do we do it in a way mm-hmm. that we still have the planet for all of us to enjoy? We still um, don't take advantage or damage one group of people to, to help one group of people. So that, that's my passion. And my, my thinking is that just as we use capitalism to grow, we can also use sustainability to grow, to make money, to make profit. It has to be with a purpose. And that's why you see most industry leaders are beginning to think about purposeful capitalism. That's what is keeping me uh, going. And I think, I think we can decarbonize. The digitalization is actually inevitable. Decentralization make things more efficient, make things more equitable by being sure that everybody is local, you have local autonomy, while at the same time being able to have global impact. I think people say think global and act local. So those are the kind of things that drives me. And this this was actually built when I, when I was growing up in Africa. And we were always looking up, we were always thinking of how to go out. Why can't we be in Africa? and bring the resources there and develop mm-hmm. there. Why do we have to have the South and the North? 
Why do uh, just a few people have to own the world? Why can't we? Why can't we share? Why can't we get along and do things together? I think that's what that's what is driving me. And I don't have the right platform. And I appreciate you inviting me to the Smart Energy Decision Platform. There's a lot to be done, and people don't have to lose for helping other people. We can enjoy the earth, but we can also replenish it profitably, effectively, equitably. That's what is driving me, I think. That was beautifully stated, and it's a very powerful message. Your career, Victor, has had you know, many different facets. What's been the biggest challenge that, that you've had to face in your career? I think the biggest has always been being able to manage authoritarianism and inclusion. There is a balance between leadership. You know, someone has to lead. Someone has to take a lead. But how do you bring other people along? How do we make sure everybody is included? There's beauty in diversity. There's beauty in equity. There's beauty in, in inclusion. So my biggest challenge is really that. How do we bring How do we carry everybody along? I understand our fingers are not the same. Equity doesn't necessarily mean equality. So how do we make sure we give people what they, what they deserve while at the same time not depriving any other group of people what they have? That, that's, that's always been the leadership challenge that I, I face. That's something that I think we'd all benefit from more people being focused on that. Who's been the biggest influence in your career and in your life? I don't know if you am allowed to, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot at it. I, I would say the biggest influence in my life has been the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's probably not politically correct or religiously correct, but quite honestly, right from when I was in high school and I believe in, in Christ, that's what made a difference in my life. I've had people that have been there, my career mentor. I can mention someone like Peter Jensen that I've worked with since we were in, in, in Atlantic Sea Electric and we still work together up to today in Bucknell. There are people like that that have come into my life. But when I really look back, I know my parents, my grandfather who was a minister. But when I really look back, what makes Victor who it is, is by the grace of God. And that's something, you know, People don't want people to say about it, but Jesus is, is, we don't see him today, but his words, if it was today, probably they would have recorded it and we would have listened to it and see a video of him. But when I read the Bible, I get it. And that's been my true north. That has been my guide. And I'm very happy. And, and the truth of the matter is that if we live like he did, whether you are Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, if we live the way he lived, the world would be different. That's another powerful message. And Victor if it's politically correct or not, I really don't care. But that I am so glad that you shared that because it's honest and it's heartfelt and it's who you are. And amen. Thank you. What accomplishment are, are you most proud of so far? Well, I got to say, John, when I left my job, very good paying job, 2012, to go to Nigeria to volunteer, basically, to serve the people. And then when I went down there, I, I had this burning desire to start a radio program. I call it the Podium of Leadership, which my main idea was to change the mindsets of the younger generation. Because if you go to Nigeria, most young people, they want to be politicians because they, all the money is concentrated in politics, in government. Right. Nigeria right. depends yeah. on our oil. When the more oil money comes, the government, people take it and, and, and share it. 
So the young people' aspiration is to become a politician. The politics doesn't doesn't develop economy. And so I started that radio program. I was on TV and radio four times in a week. I think the reach when you combine the radio and TV was maybe 10 million people in my state, Aquaibum, and the three adjoining states. So mm. just having that podium of leadership, living and sacrificing my children here, going there and spending seven years there, that to me that was that was something. When I look back. People thought I was crazy. People in Nigeria say you are crazy. My friends here said you are crazy. But I felt <laughs> I needed to do that, and I went there and did that. And when I finished, not that the work is finished, came back here to work with students and faculty, which which is investment in the future. When I have students that work with me and you meet with them and you train them, you basically sharing who you are and hoping that they become a better version of themselves when they graduate. That's very rewarding to me. Yeah, interesting. Were you expecting the call from the governor of Nigeria to ask you to come and and serve, or did that hit you as a total surprise? Yes and no, because I didn't know him as a person, but people that knew me must have mentioned it to to him. And people have, okay. have we've always known the biggest problem of Nigeria is the lack of power. Can yeah. you imagine a country of two? Hundred million people, they can't boast of seven megawatt of electricity. Two hundred million people, seven megawatt. Bognell just installed a one point six megawatt, and the student body is less than four thousand. Hundred million people, they don't have a steady seven megawatt available power. They might have installed that is maybe up to fifteen megawatt, but available at any given time. So people. Thought if we are here doing it in America, why can't we help in Nigeria? And if you were to ask me my biggest disappointment, I, I gotta say my biggest support, disappointment was I spent seven years in Nigeria. My first three years, there should have been steady power supply in my states. We had gas, we had power plants which I was running, we had the distribution in my state. Right. My governor and the guy who invited me in his name is Gosling Apabio. His vision, his vision was when you go to the space and you look down on Earth, they call Africa the dark country. And this young man said, hey, I want when next time someone go to the space, I want them to see my state and just see a small <laughs> light. And so, and so he was serious. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We all the investment to make sure there was electricity. And for the first three years, there was significant improvement. But I got to tell you that what I call in my, my next book, negative interests. People don't think about what is good for the people. People just think about their pocketbook. And that's the most difficult thing. That's, I call it negative interest. Some people call it corruption. When people get into power, when people have opportunity, they don't think about the society. And so what we are doing in, a, in, in, a, in a Boom right now, if we had invested, we did invest in if we had let negative in interests not deter us, we would have gotten steady power supply in that small state. And when you have steady power supply, people will come and build industries. People will come and manufacture. And when people manufacture, they would employ people and the economy mm-hmm. would improve. But people just think anytime they see opportunity, there is money there, they put it in their pockets. The governors, they want to build monuments. They want to build something that people will say, yeah, hey, I did that. 
But if everybody built the monuments and the, the monuments are not working to produce the economic benefit that they were justified on, that's where we, we have where we are today. And it hurts me. It turns me on a personal level. But my, my happiness is when I was there, people will come to me and say, hey, after 15 years, after 10 years, we now have electricity in our community. That makes me happy. When I was there, most of the areas did not have electricity. And by the time I, I was done my, my, my appointment, some people were able to see electricity 20 hours a day. I don't know what is the situation there now because of negative interest. It's painful. And it's also, I feel like I've done my own part. I make my own contribution. Yeah, you certainly have. That's fascinating. We take electricity for granted here. And the thought of the entire country having seven megawatts of available power, it causes you to pause and really think. What prompted you to write the book, Which Way Nigeria? Because it's interesting. You have this notion of negative interest. And when I read the book, Victor, one of the things that occurred to me, which I was not familiar with, it was how often the government structure and the government in power changed during the history of the country. Was your motivation to paint a picture for what sustainable development could be, or was it to publish a history of the evolution of the country? What what prompted you? Ah, there you go. Beautiful. Which way, Nigeria? What prompted you to write it? As a matter of fact, when I, when I went back to Nigeria in 2012, and I look at the way things were, and like you rightly pointed out, things are always up and, up and down. Right. Nigeria is a very interesting place. Before 1914, there was no place called Nigeria. And so the Britain, Britain came, and there are about 250 people, 250 different groups of people, at right. least 250 right. sets of people with different language, different things. So the Britons came in and bring these people together. They were, the people were not consulted or engaged. And so it's basically like, and John, you probably have not seen this. I grew up in the village. When women go to market and they want to sell chicken, they would tie the chicken. If there are three chicken or four of them, we call them hen or cock, they will tie their legs, just one leg. You take three and you tie their legs, they wouldn't move. All three chicken will be there. Right. You can't do anything, they can't move because they're tied together. Nigeria is like that. You bring different people, you bring the Yoruba people in the, in the, in the West, the Igbo people in the East, the Hausa people in the North, and you tie them together. They have different worldviews. They have different beliefs. It's, it's just like bringing Germans and French and Spanish people and trying to form one country without them negotiating to form a European Union. You force them to be together. It's not possible. It's like the USSR. Nobody remember USSR today, the Soviet Union. It doesn't exist anymore because it was forcibly brought. We were people that were forcibly brought together. That's the question. Which way? How do we move forward as a country? Right. And my answer in the book is that the big problem is the structure. The structure is, is not good. We don't have the right kind of leaders. Till tomorrow, we're still asking for transformational leaders in Nigeria. And the problem is if a, a leader come out of Europe, the houses and neighbors will say, no, it's not our own person. If the leader comes from Igbo, you have people who say it's not our person. And so mm -hmm. it's a big problem. So mm -hmm. my book is basically saying, if these people naturally form their own structures and then they can negotiate like the European did and say, we want to form a union, you've got to bring people along. People have mm -hmm. to agree to, 
the structure you want them to be involved. That's the problem with Nigeria. So which way are we going to go? It's sustainable development that will help. When a small state like Aquaibum is able to have steady power supply and there are employment, that can extend to the next state, to the next state, and that group will form a region. And once you form a region, another form a region, there's beauty in diversity. There is beauty in big market. There's going to be the right unit that coexists together. But if you're just forcing them together like those three chickens, they're not going to go anywhere. That's basically what the book is saying. You know, we need the right kind of structure. We need the right kind of leadership for sustainable development. And when we have people see the sustainable development, the young people that are going into politics or want to be politics, if their pocketbook is full, if they have employment, they won't want to be politicians. They want to make money. So we need leadership to ensure sustainable development. And sustainable development is not the, develop, the sustainability of development. Mm-hmm. It's this development that meets today's needs and the future needs, that is inclusive of today and tomorrow. That's what the book is about. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I enjoyed it, and I look forward to your next one and to really, at the end of the day, to think about sustainable development as something that everyone should be able to rally around and support and have it be a unifying force is a powerful concept. So thank you very much for being uh, with us today. Thank you so much for your insights and your and your contribution, obviously, on the Smart Energy Decisions Advisory Board. So thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. And, and there are so many things that, that can be done, you know, with the, with the UN 17 SDG Sustainable Development Goals, to the extent that countries are building it and going working towards that target, there's a lot that can be done that can help to bridge the gap. And I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Look forward to continuing our friendship and conversations. Thanks, Victor, for joining us, for being a keynote speaker, and for being a member of our advisory board. I know the conversation about Bucknell was enlightening, but I was particularly moved by your personal story. We look forward to watching your and Bucknell's efforts and progress going forward. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for listening to the podcast and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, please click on the link in the show notes for more details. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Victor in this podcast, on our website, and at our events all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter, Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.